0: Good morning. morning. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, as we carry on in our series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Last week, we saw Adam and Eve defy God's word, and today we are going to Hear the judgments as well as the grace that God dispenses to them. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand God's Word. I am pretty sure that you remember your first premeditated act of rebellion. (laughs) I'm not talking about the kind you committed as a toddler when your parents said to do this and you did that. I'm talking about the kind you committed as an entirely self-aware, socially conscious, free moral agent. The funny thing about that brazen act is that in the moment, it seemed so right. It seemed so sensible. Well, that first clear-headed act of moral insurrection for me happened when I was In sixth grade, Um, I did not like math. I did not do well in math. To this day, numbers devastate me. Nonetheless, Miss Gregg would collect our math homework. She would grade it, and then she would return it to us with a slip of paper that we had to take home and have our parents sign showing that they had seen our work. Well, one day, uh, there was this assignment on which I did an especially bad job. And I was so embarrassed. Both of my parents were teachers. I didn't want to show it to them, so I didn't. I didn't for days, and I didn't for weeks. And it was probably after Miss Gregg reminded me for the umpteenth time to turn in that slip that... um, uh, the air cleared and this beautiful plan became so evident to me. And my, my painfully embarrassing problem was on the road to recovery. And and it was this that I was gonna take that slip of paper and I was gonna go into my dad's study and I was going to procure his autograph off of some canceled check or you know, whatever, on his desk, and I'd put that slip over his signature and I would trace the letters and then I would turn it in to Miss Gregg who would be none the wiser. And friends, I got to tell you, it was a brilliant plan and it was executed without a hitch. Miss Gregg took it, put it on her desk. I walked away. Next day's spring break, it just got better from there. We went to Arizona. We were with friends and family. We did uh, the Grand Canyon. We did Calico. We did, you know, everything. And so life was good. The sun shone brighter. The birds sang clearer. The weight was lifted off my shoulders. Then we returned. And then came parent-teacher conferences. <laughs> and... Um, I never saw it coming. (laughs) My mother, she came home from a visit with Miss Craig, asked me if I had signed this slip of paper. And all of a sudden, the the hand-copied letters of my father's name, which looked so smooth as I was writing them, now appeared to be blatantly and sloppily forged. And the game was up. My heart sunk, my my face flushed. I knew that I had been found out. And I wish I could say that I had learned my lesson. I mean, if sin was simply a bad habit, a little operant conditioning probably would have cured me all those years ago. But my commitment to violate God's word, which in this case was clearly Leviticus 19.11, you shall not lie, and your commitment to violate God's Word, it comes from our very core. It is, as it were, part of the DNA that we, we, that we inherited from our first parents. Zarek said last week that we are sinners is the easiest thing to prove. But it's the most difficult thing to admit. And we will say anything, we will do anything to try and explain it away. When I was an undergraduate student, I was fond of asking visiting pastors at, at uh, my Christian college uh, what their greatest singular lesson had been up to that point in their ministry. And I remember I was a sophomore, and a fellow uh, from Florida by the name of Steve Brown was speaking on campus. And so I asked him about his greatest singular lesson in ministry. And without hesitation, he immediately said, that men and women are really as bad as the Bible says they are. The depth of our badness, the depth of our badness is accentuated when we consider the height of goodness from which Adam and Eve fell. You know, as we saw in chapters 1 and 2, God is good. Everything he created was good. Yea, very good. And God's word was intended to govern his creation in that very good state. But when Adam and Eve questioned God's word, when, when they viewed it as debatable rather than indubitable, that is definite, when they considered it an impediment to creating their own rules, making their own decisions, controlling their own fate, in short, being like God, everything unraveled. And the reason it had to unravel is because, as we saw in chapter 2, words matter, and words especially matter to God. And that's why as we come to this passage in chapter 3, we see two things, both of which are, are the main point of this passage. The first one, given the height from which Adam and Eve fell, is expected. The second one, also given the height from which Adam and Eve fell, is not. So what do we see? Well, first we see God responding to Adam and Eve's sin with judgment. That's to be expected. And it's important to notice because as I just said, Words matter to God. God keeps his words. What he says, he will do. So in matters of justice, we can be certain that justice will be meted out. Hasbro, the game manufacturer, recently conducted a survey of 2,000 persons who play their board game Monopoly. And here is what they learned. Of the ten most common arguments that occur while playing Monopoly, number one is people making up their own rules. And so here's what they did about it this past Christmas, or just, just a little over two months ago. They, they set up a hotline to mediate disputes. <laughs> because when it comes to right and wrong in the game of Monopoly, your house rules don't matter. All that money that goes in the middle of the board for penalties and taxes doesn't really belong to the person that lands on the free parking square. And just because your game piece lands on the go square doesn't mean that you get an extra $200 when you pass that spot. Hasbro's official rules are the final word when it comes to governing the Monopoly board. And so it is in God's world. His word is the last word when it comes to our world. House rules don't matter. I see the Bible says that, but surely God doesn't mean that. I see the Bible says that, but it's not relevant to 21st century. I see the Bible says that, but it's certainly not applicable to American culture. No, 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 no. God's word is the official word on life. Adam and Eve were not fairly, unfairly blindsided by what we will see. Rather, God was being true to himself by enacting justice about which he fairly warned Adam and Eve according to his word. Second, God responds to Adam and Eve's sin with grace. And that's unexpected. Consider this. In human terms, in human terms, Genesis 3 should really be the last page of the Bible. God said, it's going to be like this. Adam and Eve said, no, it's going to be like this at which point it should have been game over. But all we have to do is turn the page to see that it wasn't game over. Because from the garden in Genesis 3 all the way to the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, God casts wave upon wave upon wave of grace onto the shores of human history. In fact, in chapter 3 alone, there are seven waves of God's grace that are cast over Adam and Eve. So God's judgment, his grace, they are interwoven through this chapter and in particular this passage at which we're looking this morning, which really is a fitting summary of God's word in total. We'll see that with greater clarity in just a moment. But before we look at God's response to the adversary and to the woman and to the man concerning their their treachery, Uh, uh, laid out for us in the first 13 uh, 13 verses of chapter 3, it's helpful to understand the nature of God's judgment and the manner of his discipline. So let's begin with the nature of his judgment, which is not like the pagan gods that were popularly worshipped when Genesis came off the press, gods who were Uh, considered to be arbitrary and capricious, uh, random and impulsive in their actions. No, God's judgment in Genesis 3 is talionic. It means it's fair. His his judgment corresponds to the offenses. If you've ever uh, seen or heard Gilbert and Sullivan's uh, Mikado, You may remember the Lord High Executioner who uh, lyrically desires that every punishment perfectly fit the crime. And concerning billiard players, this is what he sings. I will not sing it for you. The billiard shark whom anyone catches, his doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell in a spot that's always barred. And there he plays extravagant matches matches in fitless finger stalls. On a cloth untrue with a twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. So it's not that the pool shark is denied his table or his cue stick or his billiard balls, but rather that they're all damaged. They're all distorted. They're difficult to use. And accordingly, Genesis 3 follows that same talionic approach. The serpent's craftiness is appropriate, supplanted by humiliation. The woman's gift of life-giving is fairly subjected to multiplied pain. The man's joy in work is judiciously replaced with toil. All of this is simply to say that God's judgments are thoughtfully meted out with. Every last person getting exactly what they deserved. And while the greatness of God's creation is still apparent in this world, even after the fall, it's more like a dilapidated castle, uh, uh, the ruins of which bespeak a uh, glorious past. What's well, also helpful to notice the manner of God's discipline, the importance of which was reminded. Uh, uh, I I was reminded of this past Friday night when I was sitting in on the members uh, class and and we read a portion of the papers that make up uh, who we are here at Grace. Uh, we, We all read these words. Church discipline is one of the primary responsibilities of the church. And the ability to obey Christ's way of dealing with sin is only possible if believers are clearly part of and accountable to an identifiable local church. In other words, discipline is what makes church relevant. And Genesis 3 is a clinic in discipline. For instance, notice what God doesn't do, what he doesn't do with Adam and Eve. He doesn't avoid them following their offense. And upon confronting them, he doesn't deal with them at arm's length or in some impersonal way. Rather, what he does do is he graciously and he intentionally pursues Adam and Eve. He, he directly speaks to them. He gently questions them. He carefully corrects them. This is, this, this is so difficult, but it's so good to do because discipline is a sign of Love. And here it's a sign of God's gracious love. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, Proverbs 3, 12. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, Hebrews 12, 6. I used to work with a fellow who, as an undergrad, um, uh, saw three of his buddies get into trouble. Two of them were put into the discipline pipeline there at the university. One of them escaped And he escaped because this fellow with whom I worked at that time lied for him. And he always felt bad about that, first because he lied, but second because the the two fellows that were disciplined ended up being better men for it. And the fellow who escaped, the fellow for whom he lied, persisted in his incalcitrant lifestyle even right down to the day on which he was telling me that story. This morning you may feel in in, in some way under God's discipline. My encouragement to you is don't shirk it. It's a gracious thing and we'll see that with even greater clarity as we continue on here. So let's take a look at these ones whom the Lord disciplines, beginning with the adversary. Just going to look at three quick things here. First in verse 14, while God graciously pursued and questioned Adam and Eve concerning their sin, there is no question put to the adversary. Instead, and here's the second thing, he is directly cursed. Adam and Eve, not cursed. Great grace. The ground is cursed In verse 17, the adversary is cursed here in verse 14. Third thing, it's in verse 15, because the adversary has ruined the human race, God declares his destruction. And in this book of beginnings, which is what Genesis is, this is the first expression of the gospel. Now, notice that God's initial articulation of the good news, and this is fascinating i've never seen this it's not a promise to adam and eve it's not a promise to adam and eve it's rather a sentence passed down on the adversary guaranteeing that someday he would be crushed his strongholds turned to dust isaiah 25 12 his followers sharing in his serpentine humiliation micah 7 17 This is why we can all face up to the adversary with confidence. You see, it's not as if God said to Adam and Eve, you know what, this guy's tough, but you can do it, and I'm right behind you. (laughs) Go ahead. No. No. He says, I have declared your adversary's destruction right to his face, so get behind me. In fact, as I was writing this part of my sermon, in my mind I was imagining God and his people on the curb and the adversary out there in the middle of the street and God steps out there and he takes his finger and he pokes the adversary right in the sternum and he says, you're done. Get out of here. Follow me. Well, that's God's word to the adversary. And we're actually going to return to this word in a bit, but for now it's... uh, Move on to the woman. It's interesting to note that unlike the adversary in Adam, God levels no charge against Eve. In fact, the woman ends up playing a crucial role in God's plan to liberate the human race from the adversary's influence. But that's not to say that the woman suffers no ill effects from the fall. To begin in verse 16, God informs her that her pain in childbirth is going to be multiplied. So uh, by implication, it, it seems to be extant to begin with, but it's just going to intensify. Now that word for ease, pain in childbirth, is identical to the one he uses for Adam's pain in work down in verse 17. So it's the pain of toil. It's the pain of sweat. It's the pain of sorrow. And it's a pain if, if you do a, a, a uh, I was going to say vivisection, but that's not the word I want. If you take this verse apart. What's well, a living word? So I guess it is a vivisection. If you take this word apart, you find that it, it, it includes not only childbirth, but, but uh, from conception all the way through child rearing. Adam and Eve bear testimony to the pain of child-rearing. And Cain and Abel, my parents will bear testimony to the pain of child-rearing because of yours truly. Then God speaks words to Eve that are especially difficult for 21st century Americans to, to understand, let alone hear. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband." but he shall rule over you. What does that even mean? I can tell you what it doesn't mean. This is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that a husband has an honest excuse to mistreat his wife. He shall rule over you cannot be understood in extreme terms. Just like pain in childbirth doesn't mean as much suffering as possible. That said, what does it mean? Well, it seems to mean that the mutual freedom upon which marriage was founded back in chapter 2, verse 25, is replaced by selfish struggle. In, in, in fact, the way this passage is put together makes it clear that the wife's desire for her husband is going to be set in direct opposition to his rule, just like in chapter 4, verse 7, where sin's desire for Cain is set in direct opposition to his exhortation to rule over it. So in basic terms, verse 16 means that Eve, whom God created to supportively help her husband, husband, is now tempted to control him. And Adam, whom God created to lovingly lead his wife, well, he's now tempted to dominate her. And what God designed to be this interdependent team, Adam and Eve turned into these independent agents engaging in all kinds of conflict. I think those of us that are married can understand that so God's word to the adversary God's word to the woman finally his word to the man now Adam's absence is rather conspicuous in verses 1 through 7 but it doesn't mean that he was late to the scene he was there for the whole interaction between the adversary and and his wife and we know this because the adversary's temptation back there in those verses, is all framed in the second person plural. So he was speaking to Eve. He was also speaking to Adam, who may have been standing there in the shadows, but was nonetheless there. So Adam's sin is one of passivity. The word concerning the garden and all of its prohibitions were spoken by God to Adam. Eve was not yet on the scene she only knows of this by way of her husband god had spoken these things to him and so he should have stepped up he should have boldly rebuked the adversary he should have gently corrected his wife and then grabbed her arm and gotten out of there but instead what happens is creation order is entirely flipped onto its head You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, creation begins with God who made man, out of whom comes woman, and under whose care, that is, both woman and man, the animals were placed. But in Genesis 3, that order is entirely upset, where we have an animal exercising authority over the woman who tempts the man with whom she attempts, that is, the two of them together, to Put God under themselves to supplant him under their authority. So this truly diabolical promise, by eating you shall become like God, is fulfilled not by attaining to divinity, but by the source of Adam's food becoming cursed. And so the soil that was once submissive to Adam is now resistant to him. That thing which had rendered abundance now is producing thorns and thistles. And Adam's work, which was once a pleasure, is now going to bring him pain, and it's going to end in death. That's not a release or a relief, but a disaster. So now Adam recognizes that any breath could be his last, and. He uh, acknowledges a gift, the gift of life by naming his wife Eve, mother of all the living. We see that in verse 20. And then God clothes them in durable animal skins to replace the, the flimsy leaves with which they clothed themselves once they reala- realized that they were naked. And of course, this was done at the expense of a life, which Adam clearly recognized as the penalty for sin. That was obvious to him. And to prevent further temptation and ruin, God graciously ordered Adam and Eve out of the garden in verse 23. But the implicit message is they didn't want to go (laughs) where they were going with, with heels dug in. And so we see in verse 24, he finally drives them out. And then he posts, the Lord posts to cherubim, to sentinel with a fiery sword guarding the gate to keep Adam and Eve from going back into the garden lest they eat this time of the tree of life and live forever in their sinful state. So what's their hope? What's our hope as one's now living outside the garden apart from God in rebellion against him? lying and boasting and conniving and dominating well the answer is found back there in chapter in verse 15 the seed of the woman declared by God to crush the adversary becomes the great longing of God's people from that point forward it certainly is for Eve In chapter 3, it becomes that way for Seth in chapter 5. We see it for Noah in chapter 9. We pick it up with Abraham in chapter 12. In fact, 59 times throughout the book of Genesis. Most often in genealogies, we find God's people expectantly looking for the arrival of that seed, of that man, of the snake crusher who's going to bring an end to the iron grip of sin. And finally... On the first Noel, that seed is revealed in the person of Jesus. who was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil, and to put all enemies under his feet, so that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come. First John 3:8, 2 Corinthians 15:25 and 5:17. And when God did that in his son, when he destroyed the works of the devil by way of Christ's death, the veil which separated men and women from God's presence in the temple at Jerusalem and bore the image of the fiery sword-waving cherubim which kept Adam and Eve from returning to God's presence in the garden, that veil was torn in two, thereby fulfilling Genesis 3.15, ending rebellion, and giving you and me the opportunity to personally know our Creator and practically enjoy new life with Him through Christ. And the beautiful thing is, there's no one too far gone (laughs) for old things to pass away and all things to become new. In fact, I I was so impressed with this over the past 10 days or so, I just began writing little notes in my notebook and on my my sermon notes and in my computer about the import of this passage. And so last night I just began pulling them together and put them in a list and these are the things I've, I've written, the impressions I've had over the last 10 days. And one day I wrote, this is a permanent solution. This is the answer that is neither Democrat nor Republican. Hallelujah. <laughs> this means transformation and not just reformation. <laughs> this is good news, no matter where you've been, with whom you've been, what you've bought, thought or planned." Somewhere else I had written, "The good news requires proclamation. Who are you going to tell? The gospel is why we're in business, to know it, to grow in it, to sow it. And I wrote, this is hopeful. Jesus takes the worst cases. Jesus takes the greatest failures. In fact, the thing that you think is keeping you from God, like Adam and Eve's banishment from Eden, is actually the very thing that he is using to draw you back to him to make you aware of your need and his great promise for relationship. This is Black History Month, I was reading about John Newton, who in the 18th century rejected his Christian upbringing, uh, ran away to Africa so, uh, and I quote, that I might might sin my fill, Newton said. Here to living by slave trading. And his God-rejecting life was exemplified uh, on one trip in particular when they were sailing back to Scotland and uh, Newton broke into the liquor cabinet, pulled out all the booze, passed it around to his buddies and everybody on the boat got blasted. In fact, Newton became so drunk he fell overboard and into the ocean and he was rescued by an officer who grabbed a harpoon and... Harpoon, Newton pulled him in. From that point forward, he always had a scar the size of a fist on the thigh in which he was impaled. Well, as they approached Scotland at the end of that particular trip, the uh, ship veered off course and began to take on water. And Newton was sent down to the hold with the slaves to begin pumping water. And he did that for hours. He did that for days on end. And as he's doing this, his life becomes incredibly clear. And he begins reflecting on it. And he remembers verses that he had learned when he was a boy out of the Bible. And then he begins crying out to God. And you know what's interesting? God found John Newton right down there in the hold of that ship. He was waiting there to save him. And many of you know the rest of the story. He ends up becoming a pastor. You can visit his church building today in downtown London, St. Mary Woolnith. He was a, a hymn writer. We sing Amazing Grace here with some regularity. And he became a crusader for the abolition of slavery, the very sin to which he was party. In fact, he was a great encourager of William Wilberforce who um, was the tireless worker that ended up uh, uh, bringing an end to the slave trade in England. Now, some of you hear that story and you think, yeah, but that was 200 years ago. Uh, And I've heard enough pastor stories to know that you guys have to blow the dust off before you tell these things. Well, here's a letter that came to the church office a couple of months ago. <clears throat> it's on, a, As you can see, it's on notebook paper here, and it says, Dear Grace Evangelical Church, my name is Robert. I write from Soledad Prison. Until 11 months ago, I'd lost over a decade to substance abuse. Many times I tried to quit on my own before I found Christ. That was the day I surrendered, asking God to help me overcome my addiction madness. Thanks to him, today, I'm living chemical-free. I've come to believe God allows us to stumble, so we'll find him. Had I not been addicted to opiates, never would I have found his path. My Savior has delivered me from the bondage of narcotics and sin, Enabling me to continue growing in faith and his wisdom. Being active in a 12 step recovery, currently I am working step nine making amends. Once I began writing the multitude I've wronged to make direct amends, I realized I wouldn't have enough postage to mail all the letters. After Sunday fellowship, my pastor suggested I write a church outside these walls and briefly construe my predicaments. He helped me with a few uh, metered indigent envelopes. I decided to write two that I found in our church directory, which are nearest my home, trying to reach out to my own community. So he must be, even though he's up at Soledad, he must be somewhere from somewhere around here. I'm writing to ask for your help. If there's a place in your heart, please. Can you help me with the book of, of uh, two or three postage stamps, two or three books of postage stamps. I'd very much like to write the remaining 35 or 40 letters to those whose lives have been affected by my actions and have a way to send them. Having found the grace and mercy of Christ to be so liberating, I believe I'm being guided through his ways of healing, and I'm praying that your lives are continually filled with happiness and joy. May your days be blessed with God's love. Robert. For his sins, Robert was imprisoned where he found Jesus, waiting to liberate him from each and every one of them. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is waiting to free you from the prison in which you're living today. I don't know what prison it is you're sitting in right now. There's a woman that came up to me after first service. She said, I can't believe you read that letter. I've never been to this church. I've been addicted to opiates. I'm in a 12-step program. I'm on step number nine, making amends. <laughs> this is so encouraging to me. Maybe you're like her. Maybe you're like Robert. Maybe your prison is pornography. Maybe your prison is, I don't know what it is. But Jesus is there. And he's there to show you that the adversary has put, been put down. The head of the snake has been crushed. Crushed power of sin and death has been rendered impotent. It is okay to come out. You can come out. You can come out even today. And if you need help doing that, I'd love to talk to you afterwards or point point you to somebody uh, who can. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that when sin was introduced, the good news of its ultimate destruction was announced as well. Help us to see through our sin and our self-appointed miseries to the graciously liberating work of Christ who crushed our adversary. And then help us to say no to sin and yes to him. We pray.